I was reading about this guy named Bernie Krause who records nature sounds for film and television. And he was saying that in 1968, in order to get one hour of undisturbed natural sound, like no airplanes, no cars, it would take him about 15 hours of recording time. And he was saying that today, in order to get that same one hour of undisturbed sound, it takes him 2,000 hours of recording time. It reminds me of the story of one of the great Jewish prophets, Elijah, who's been going and going, and he's just about at the end. I mean, he's just totally stressed, just totally fried, and doesn't even know if he wants to go on. And God says, Elijah, go up on the mountain, because I'm going to show up. And so Elijah goes up on the mountain. And so this wind comes on the mountain, and it like shakes the mountain violently, but God isn't in the wind. And then there's this earthquake, but God isn't in the earthquake. And then like this massive fire covers the mountain, but God isn't in the fire. And then comes the still, small voice of God. Now, there's all this discussion about what exactly this, this voice is, because some people think that the actual Hebrew word doesn't even refer to a sound that you could like hear with your ears, like an audible noise. And so some translators translate the phrase that God was in the sound of sheer silence. God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire. God was in the silence. morning. Today's reading is Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day, when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave us his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Bills are going for two, leading 27-26. 
Josh Allen looking left, now turning right, now spinning back to the right, now being chased, now working to pump faking, and now will fire late, and the pass is caught in the back of the end zone for two points for the Bills. Well, you don't want to leave Mahomes three timeouts in a minute, 54, and well, they lead by one. Now with that conversion, okay, that was huge. That was really huge. Second and 10, Mahomes at his own 36. Down by three. Over the middle. Cut Tyreek Hill up to 45. Angling right 40. 35, Cheetah. 25, 20. 15, 10, 5. Touchdown! Kansas City. A 64-yard touchdown. This place is going crazy. Perfect timing, perfect execution, perfect play call. He's played unbelievable today and so efficient. Two touchdowns in 52 seconds. And yet there's still plenty of time and three timeouts for the Bills, for Josh Allen to go right back and answer again. Touchdown number four on the night for Davis. Buffalo scores with 13 seconds left. Looks pretty grim there. Do you have any special advice to Pat? Yeah, when it's grim, be the grim reaper. Be the grim reaper. Be the grim reaper. When your coach believes in you that much, it gives you the, the belief to go out there and do it. For Pat, you got 10 people around him who's going to help him win the football game. You got to have trust in your teammates. They might, they might man you up. They, I'm saying go outside and come back in like you're running around outside. That way when you come back in, I can get in the way. They throw it to Tyreek Hill. This is a 19-yard game. They actually have a chance to get Bucker in field goal range here. They're playing like that. That seam is open. And I told him I'm probably not going to run the route that, uh, that it's called. I'm just going to run to the open area. If he was screaming at me at the line of scrimmage, do it. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be a 48-yard attempt. From there, it was just making sure on timeout. missed a 50-yard field goal at the end of the second quarter. Put down a 49-yard try to try to tie it at three seconds to go in regulation. I'm so nervous. The kick is good! Good morning, everyone. My name is Scott Raines. I am not in denial. <laughs> I'm well aware my Chiefs lost last week. I'm well aware we had an 18-point lead at home. We blew it. We got the coin flip when it went into overtime. Everybody knows if you win the coin toss, the game's over. We blew it. Uh, Gabe Plager is on staff here in our, on our facilities team. He's a huge Cincinnati Bengals fan, so we had a little friendly wager. If his Bengals beat my Chiefs, I'd wear a, a Bengals hat to start the sermon. So congratulations to Gabe and the other three Bengals fans in central Iowa. <laughs> very, very happy for you. Actually, if it hadn't happened to my team, I would be excited. I love upsets. It's great. But uh, how about we forget about last weekend and we go back to two weeks ago uh, when the Bills played the Chiefs. How great was that? And um, I'm watching that game, and it's just, I'm a Chiefs fan, so I'm thinking, this is a really good game. I th this might be one of the best games ever. And then all week long, people who were not even Chiefs fans were saying, this was one of the greatest games ever in the history of the NFL. Uh, Tony Romo, who was broadcasting the game uh, for CBS, when, it, when they made the field goal to send that game into overtime, 
He said, we're watching maybe perfect quarterback play. And he wasn't just talking about my guy Mahomes. He was talking about Josh Allen of the Bills as well. In the last two minutes of regulation, before it went into overtime, that clip we just watched, the lead changed three times. 25 points were scored in just two minutes. Just incredible. One of the best games ever. So here's the question for us as we get started in the message. What does it look like for you to play your best game as a follower of Jesus? Or what does it look like for you to live your best life as a follower of Jesus? They looked at that Bills-Chiefs game and immediately came to the conclusion, what we just saw was one of the best games ever. If someone were to observe your life, watch you living your life, what would they need to see to come to the conclusion, you know, that's one of the best examples I've ever seen of someone following after Jesus. So that's what we're going to dig into today as we begin a new uh, message series. At all the campuses of Hope in the month of February, uh, the message series is Taking Care of You. One of the core values at Hope is following Jesus is a growing experience. Whether you've been following Jesus for decades or you're just kind of new to this faith thing, every single one of us, we've never arrived. There's always a next step of growth for us. And, and kind of what the Bible teaches about this idea of growth, just this very simple thing, healthy things grow. It's just the, the nature of things. It's the way things are. Healthy things grow. So I want you to think as we go through uh, this month, through this series, this is really a series on health. Today we'll be talking about spiritual health. Next week, physical health. What's the connection between our uh, physical health and living a, a life of faith? The third week of the series, really important topic, mental health. And then the final week of the series, we'll look at our true selves, our, our true identity found in God through Christ. How does living out of our true self lead to a healthier uh, life in every aspect of our life? So today we're talking about spiritual health. Our Bible reading is from the book of Titus, which is really a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a man named Titus. Titus is helping lead a church on uh, the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a, a church that the Apostle Paul helped start. Now Titus is leading it. And it got me thinking, there's probably still a church on the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Don't you think they should be kind of a sister church to us and we should like every once in a while send people over there, probably in February, to a Mediterranean island and just do ministry together? Anyway, uh, Paul's letter to Titus is kind of saying, it, it's this encouragement, this reminder Keep the gospel central to everything. Keep the gospel central to everything. Uh, the gospel, the good news about grace, love, forgiveness, eternal life through Jesus Christ. Keep that central, Titus, to everything you do as you lead the church, as you preach, as you put worship services together, as, as you uh, teach people how to be disciples, how to be followers of Jesus. But even more than that, it, it, not just when we're talking about church-related activity, how do you keep the gospel central every day of your life, every moment of your life? And this is what Paul's getting at, I think, in verse 12 of chapter 2. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. How do the Bills and Chiefs play such a great game, almost a, a perfect game a couple of weeks ago? They've been practicing for that moment for decades, year after year after year. How do you and I live our best life as followers of Jesus? We talk about practice. Take a look. Hey, James. I heard you're not going to be able to run with us today. Is that true? Yep. 
Why is that? Because I'm at. Really sorry to hear that. Relax, Ted. It's just practice. Hey, if you can't practice, you can't practice. You're hurt, you're hurt. It's as simple as that. But it ain't about that. At all. You're sitting in here, you're supposed to be the franchise player. And yet here we are, talking about you missing practice. We're talking about practice. You understand me? Practice. Not a game. Not a game, not the game you go out there and die for, right? Play every weekend like it's your last, right? No, we talking about practice, man. Practice. You know you're supposed to be out there. You know you're supposed to lead by example. You're just shoving that all aside. And so here we are, Jamie. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not the game. We're talking about practice with your team, with your teammates. The only place that we get to play together, we got control over. Rest of the time, it's us 11 against those 11. We're talking about practice, man. So if you care about sports a little too much like I do, um, you maybe recognize that everything that Ted Lasso is saying in that clip, it's verbatim from a press conference that Allen Iverson had about 20 years ago when he was playing for the 76ers and he just went on a rant about practice. But we are talking about practice today, spiritual practices. What do I need to do to grow in my faith? What do I need to do to live a life in this world that's marked by wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God? And over the course of the centuries in the church, certain practices have developed that have helped people do this sort of thing, regardless of cultural context, regardless of what's going on in society or or how society has evolved over the last 2,000 years. These spiritual practices, sometimes called spiritual disciplines, They help us do this, grow in our faith. A Quaker by the name of Richard Foster has written sort of the the modern classic on um, uh, spiritual disciplines. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. And he breaks them down into three categories. He talks about inward disciplines, uh, disciplines like prayer and fasting and meditation and study of God's word, outward disciplines, uh, simplicity, uh, solitude service, submission. He he talks about corporate disciplines. There are some uh, disciplines we practice as individuals, other disciplines we need to be together to practice, corporate disciplines like worship, uh, like guidance, like celebration. Celebration is actually a spiritual discipline. We call our worship services celebration services here uh, for a reason. Another book that's helpful on this is a book called The Spiritual Discipline Handbook, written by Adele Calhoun. Uh, She is a pastor at a church in Massachusetts, and she takes the relatively small list of spiritual disciplines, and she expands it a little bit. Uh, She she breaks it down uh, to help us sort of broaden our understanding, what does it look like to engage in these spiritual practices? For example... Uh, In her chapter on prayer, the spiritual discipline of prayer, she talks about 17 different ways we can practice praying. Breath prayer, centering prayer, contemplative prayer. Uh, She talks about praying the labyrinth or liturgical prayer, uh, praying through scripture, prayer walking, all of these sorts of things. And if you are like me, initially when I see a list of 17 ways that we can pray, I get kind of excited about it because I'm like, oh good, maybe there's one of these I'll actually enjoy. Maybe there's one of these that I can consistently do and it will help me grow in my practice of prayer and and, uh, connecting with God, relating with God that way. 
But it doesn't take very long for me to move from excitement to sort of being overwhelmed when I see a list of 17 practices related to prayer. And I start beating myself up a little. I'm almost 50 years old. I haven't even heard of some of these. And um, like, why haven't I mastered prayer yet? And how am I ever going to have time to try all 17 of these and master them? And that's just prayer. What about, are there 17 different things we need to be focusing in on when we worship or when we get together in a small group or when we study scripture? And it's like, how am I ever going to be able to do all the things I need to do to get my faith to where I want it to be, where God wants it to be? And we start to see the dilemma that we face when we start digging into this idea of how does our faith grow? And we get to a place where we end up with turning it into something that's all about me. What do I need to do in order to somehow earn God's favor, earn God's approval. And so just to be clear, anytime we find ourselves slipping into that place where we we find ourselves with this connection between faith and earning, we're no longer talking about the Christian faith. Christian faith is really clear on this. We're saved by grace through faith, and this is not our own doing, so none of us can boast. It's a gift of God. Grace is God's gift to us that saves us. And, and when we talk about sort of eternal salvation, how do I get to heaven? I think we sort of understand this idea of grace. We may not understand it fully, but it sort of makes sense to us. Uh, just a simple graphic, a simple illustration, diagram that's been helpful to me over the years on this. Here's me, sinner Scott. Here's God, a holy God, and there's a distance between us. Uh, there's, a separate, there's a gap between us. What bridges the gap? What makes it possible for me to be in a life-giving, life-saving relationship with God? It's grace that does that. And when we're talking about eternal salvation, that sort of makes sense to me. Paul writes about it, Titus 2.11, part of our Bible reading for today. The grace of God has been revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Grace is what saves us, the power of God to save us. But when we start talking about What is it that helps us grow? What is it that matures us, uh, transforms us as we follow after Jesus? I think it's difficult for us to understand grace is the power of God that does that too. Again, here's a fairly simple illustration to kind of talk about it. Go to the next slide. There it is. There's the me that I am today. There's the me that I hope to be in five years or ten years. And I hope I grow and mature and God continues this ongoing work of transforming me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, through the course of my life. The me that I am today, the me that I hope to be, and there's a distance there. There's, how am I going to grow? How am I going to become the person that I want to be? And when we talk about it in any other area of your life, if you want to grow as a musician, if you want to grow as an athlete, we say, here's the things that you need to do. Here's the practices that you need to do. 10,000 hours. It's going to help you grow to kind of that expert place. But the Bible teaches us there's something, spiritual disciplines, is that what it's going to do? The Bible says no. The power that changes us and grows us is the same power that saves us. It's grace. And so it's easy for us to then say, okay, so I just sit back on my couch and wait for God to zap maturity into me. No, that's not what the Bible teaches either. A guy named Dallas Willard, a pastor and author, he puts it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. I think that's a helpful distinction. Of course there are things that we do. Of course there are practices that we engage in as we grow in our faith. But, but, 
I heard somebody say one time, you should pay attention to the preacher's butt, which doesn't sound right when you say it. <laughs> but I think they're on to something. Oh, of course there are things that we do, practices we engage in to grow in our faith, but we don't do the things we do in order to earn anything. We don't do it to earn God's favor, earn salvation, earn God's love. Think about it this way. The, the things we do, uh, they position us for God's grace to be at work in our lives. So uh, we're going to have communion at the end of the message. We're going to eat the bread and drink the wine, the juice of communion. It's called a means of grace. Communion is a means of grace. That This simple wafer of bread, this nasty juice... Somehow, in the activity of doing that, God's grace is at work in ways that wouldn't be at work if we did not do it. And the same is true for spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. They position us for God's grace to be at work in us. So we're, we're talking about practice today. We're talking about spiritual practices. But it occurs to me, like, I think the last thing you need is to come to church. I think we're in a season where the last thing you need is to come to church and have the preacher tell you, you need to do more. You're not doing enough. I think we're all kind of exhausted. And like, don't, don't heat me up with a burden of more things that I need to do. So I'm not going to do that. I am going to give you three things to do. But, but I think these three things, it's not, you might actually like it. Uh, these, they're kind of, um, they are spiritual practices, but they're a little surprising. They come from a guy named Pete Scazzaro. Uh, he and his wife, Jerry, they've written a book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And so these three uh, practices that I want you to do as you leave worship today uh, come from this. A little surprising, but think about it, maybe give it a shot. The first thing I want you to do when you leave church today, I want you to Relax. I want you to relax. So I'm watching this Bills-Chiefs game a couple of weeks ago, and it's really like 30 minutes from the two-minute warning until the end of the game. A 30 minute, it's like the most stressful 30 minutes of my life. And my friends are texting me, you doing okay? People from the church are checking in with me on Twitter. Pastor Scott, how's your heart rate? You doing okay? We don't want any cardiac arrest when you're watching your Chiefs. And uh, even Tony Romo, as he's brought, they're lining up to kick the field goal to send it in overtime. I don't know if you heard it. He says, I'm so nervous. Just watching the game, he was nervous. How do you think Harrison Butker felt lining up to kick that? Uh, how, how do you think uh, Mahomes felt? You got 13 seconds to get into field goal range. So apparently Mahomes is an investor in something called Whoop, W-H-O-O-P. It's like an Apple Watch, but it's specifically designed for elite athletes, elite physical performance. And it keeps track of all the important things that your body is doing when you're working out that, that matter for health. And so after the game on Monday, they started releasing some of the data from his whoop watch. Here's part of what they found. Mahomes' heart rate spiked when he's on the sideline watching. His heart rate went up when he's on the sideline watching. His heart rate was low when he was on the field, in the huddle, pre-snap, getting ready to perform. So what I take from that is all of the years of training, all the years of preparing, all the years of practicing enabled Patrick Mahomes to be relaxed when everything was on the line. Uh, when, when the pressure was mounting, the most stressful moment, the game's on the line, the season's on the line, and somehow he's able to be relaxed. Which makes me wonder, shouldn't our faith do something similar for us?
Shouldn't our faith in God enable us to be, when, when everything's on the line, when we're dealing with pressures and the stresses that come our way, shouldn't our faith in God give us sort of a relaxed posture to help us through it? Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus uh, performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So great crowds of people are following Jesus at this point in his ministry. After the miracle, Jesus moves on to do whatever he's going to do next, and the crowds follow him. And as the crowds are following him uh, in John chapter 6, at one point they say to Jesus, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? What should we do? And I think in the context of what we're talking about today, it, it wouldn't be surprising if what they were expecting Jesus to say is, we want you to do these spiritual practices. Study scripture, uh, worship, uh, serve, you know, take care of the hungry, take care of those who are hurting. That's what I want you to do, but that's not what Jesus says. Let's read together the next verse, verse 29. Here's Jesus' response. Read it out loud with me. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. What's the work we should do, Jesus? And Jesus' response is, believe in me. Trust in me. Now, when Jesus is talking about believing in me, our, our theme for the whole year at Hope is God in us in real life. Jesus isn't saying like, yeah, back in November of 1984, you uh, believed in God and that was a one and done kind of thing, got that over with. no. Believing in Jesus is this ongoing, everyday, moment by moment, whatever's going on in our life, how can I be in a place where I trust in Jesus, I believe in Jesus? And he extends this invitation 98 times in John's gospel. The biblical scholars will say the primary theme of the gospel of John is believing in Jesus. Believe, believe, believe. At the end of the gospel, John just makes it as clear as possible. I've written all these things, so that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing you might have life through the power of his name. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Uh, there's a theologian by the name of Frederick Dale Bruner, and uh, Bruner says this, relaxing in is a good modern translation of trusting in or believing in. What do you want us to do, Jesus? I want you to relax in me. That's the first, that's the primary thing. That no matter what's going on in your life, on the mountaintop, in the valley, God is with you, God is holding you, and I want you to trust that. I want you to relax in that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you as well. The first, the primary practice for followers of Jesus, relaxing in him. That might be worth a shot. Relax, and then secondly, detach. Detach. So here's a picture on the screen of football fans leaving the stadium. They show up to the stadium to watch their favorite team play, to cheer their team on to victory, and when things do not go the way they want them to go, they leave early. They head for the exits. Same thing happens to Jesus. He does this 
miracle, feeding of the 5,000. The crowds are going wild. This is awesome. And as you keep reading through John chapter 6, Jesus starts to say things that uh, confuse the crowd, that they don't particularly like. I'm the bread of life, Jesus says. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the crowd heads for the exits. Yeah, I think we've heard enough. And as the crowd around Jesus begins to thin out, Jesus freaks out. And he calls his disciples together. He's like, what are we going to do? Everybody's leaving. Attendance is down. How do we get people to come back? No, he doesn't. He doesn't freak out at all. Jesus remains detached as the crowds thin out. And when I say detached, I'm not, it's not like Jesus is disinterested, disengaged, or cold. To say Jesus is detached is to say he's not attached to the outcome. He's not attached to the results that you and I get very attached to in our lives. Uh, Three things that Jesus says in John chapter 6 point us to this idea. What does healthy detachment look like? Verse 37, Jesus says, those the Father has given me will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. Verse 65, this is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. So Jesus is really clear here. There are things Jesus has to do. There's activity he has to, he's got to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, announce the good news of the kingdom of God, demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' job. The rest is up to God. The crowds aren't going to come unless God gives them to me, unless God sends them to me. That's not my job. That's not my role. Jesus understands that. He's able to stay detached from the outcome. As the numbers start going in the direction that all of us would say, oh, that's the wrong direction. If Jesus wants to be classified as successful, Jesus is detached. Uh, There's a guy named Meister Eckhart, a Dominican monk, a theologian from about 700 years ago. When he would teach on detachment, he'd always point to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, we don't talk about this a lot, but Mary had a choice. The angel comes to her. The angel said, God has chosen you to be the uh, mother of God's son. But Mary had a choice. She could have said no. She could have said, yeah, thanks, Gabriel. I'm really honored, but I'm not sure it lines up with my five-year, ten-year strategic plan for my life. She could have said no. She understood that saying yes meant the loss of reputation. She's an unwed teenage girl. She understood saying yes would mean her life is going to unfold uh, along a very different path than any path she had ever dreamed or envisioned for her life. And knowing all of that, aware of all of that, Mary still says yes. Mary allows God to birth something new in her. Are you willing to allow God to birth something new in you? Am I willing to allow God to birth something new in me? Thankfully, for most of us, it's not talking about a human being. But God's talking about orchestrating the events of our life, the plans of our life. So, so our life unfolds according to God's will, not my own. That's the real question, right? Are you willing to surrender your will to God's will? Relax, detach, and then the third practice is listen. So the Chiefs get 13 seconds to try to send the game into overtime. 
And everybody thinks the game is over. The Bills coaches are jumping up and down, hugging each other. The players are congratulating each other. They get to move on to the AFC Championship game. And out come the Chiefs. They run their first play. They get 19 yards. It takes five seconds. Now there's eight seconds left. They still need to get about 15 yards to get into realistic field goal range. They line up to run the play, and the Bills call a timeout. And during the timeout, Travis Kelsey, who is the all-pro tight end for the Chiefs, he goes over to Mahomes and says, listen, if they line up in the defense I think they're going to line up in, I'm not going to do what the coaches told me to do. I'm just going to run to open space, and you hit me. So the timeout ends. They line up to run the play. Mahomes is reading the, the defense, and you can hear him shout out, do it. Do it, Kelsey. And Kelsey runs to open space. They hit him. They get 24 yards, they kick the field goal, they send it into overtime. I'm glad those two guys were listening to each other that moment. One of the reasons this was one of the best games ever is because the players were listening to each other. And if we want to live our best life as followers of Jesus, we have to learn how to listen, particularly we have to learn how to listen for the voice of God which is a real challenge, a real struggle for us. I I love that video we watched earlier in the service where they're talking about how loud and how noisy the world is. I think the video is 20 years old. (laughs) Imagine how much louder and noisier the world is today. And they reminded us that biblically, the scripture teaches that God's voice often shows up as a gentle whisper, a still small voice. Uh, What we're listening for often is the sound of sheer silence. That's how we know when God is speaking to us. And then the guy in the video takes a remote and he just shuts everything down. There's no sound. There's just a black screen. And it stayed that way for 18 seconds before the text started to come up on the screen. Chiefs have 13 seconds to get into field goal range. I'm guessing 13 seconds into those 18 seconds, no one in this uh, worship center was feeling very comfortable. Like, who forgot what they were supposed to do next? Someone's supposed to be doing something. What's going on? We, We are just so uncomfortable with silence. And part of my job, all of my job, is to point you to Jesus. Points you to the way of Jesus. And, and we're used to the way of this world. And there's a lot about this world that's great and it feels good. It's normal. It's what we know. It's what we're familiar with. But just because it's what we know and it's what we're familiar with doesn't mean it's always good. Sometimes we need to point ourselves to a new way, a better way, the Jesus way. John chapter 6, he does the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The same story shows up in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Throughout the course of Luke chapter 9, like a couple of weeks take place in Jesus' ministry. So it begins with the feeding of the 5,000. A couple weeks later, Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John, his three best disciples, his star players, and they go up on top of a mountain to pray. And while they are praying, Peter, James, and John fall asleep. They do this regularly when they're praying with Jesus. They just fall asleep. Jesus keeps praying, and as Jesus is praying... Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Jesus. Uh, They're a couple of Hall of Famers from the Old Testament. And this is referred to as uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus is, I don't know what, doing something with uh, Moses and Elijah, and Peter wakes up, and he sees them. And instead of like listening to what they might be talking about, what they might be planning, 
Peter just kind of impulsively says, I got an idea, I got a plan, let's build monuments here and we can sell tickets and people can come and they can see this holy shrine, the Mount of Transfiguration. And as Peter's explaining his plan, God interrupts. And it's one of the few times in all of the Gospels that the audible voice of God is heard. So let's read together what God says. Luke 9.35, it's on the screen, read it with me. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Uh, hopefully you noticed, if, if you're new to Hope, you wouldn't have noticed, but if you've been around Hope for a while, we've kind of changed things up today, didn't do things the normal order that we do it. And when we did the Bible reading today, we just left the screen blank. We didn't tell you, open your Bibles or your Bible apps. We just wanted you to listen to the Word of God. We want to help teach you, train you. How do you practice listening for the voice of God in your life? Because it's a real struggle for all of us. In our world, sure, but it has been. I mean, Peter struggled. That's why God had to tell him, you need to listen to Jesus, because it was hard for Peter to do that. The first 500 years of church history, uh, there was a spiritual gift, a gift of the Spirit called discretion. And the early church believed like this was one of the most important spiritual gifts. It was absolutely vital, absolutely necessary for anyone in any kind of leadership position, but particularly in leadership position in a, in a church. The spiritual gift of discretion. The, the ability to patiently wait and intentionally listen for the voice of God, to allow that voice of God to lead you, to direct you, to help you as you make plans. The early church believed if you didn't have the gift of discretion and you were a leader, you were dangerous. You were dangerous. Now, there's a woman named Grace Pouch. Uh, she works for an organization called Renovari, and Renovari's mission is to renew the church through spiritual practices. She says the principle of discretion encourages us to recognize what is life-giving, to give grace to others, and to avoid rigidity and extremism. It makes room for the possibility of more than one right response to the challenges we face. I think back over the last couple of years, it seems perhaps our leaders have been lacking discretion. How might the last couple of years have gone if we had a little more discretion? What might the circles where you, we have a lot of leaders in this church. Leaders in schools, leaders in the business world, uh, leaders in medicine, all, all sorts of areas, leaders in their homes. How can we learn to practice the principle of discretion? It begins with intentional listening. Relax. Believe in Jesus. Detach. Trust that the Jesus who is holding you is the one who's in charge of the outcomes. And then listen. Slow down. Still yourself, find ways to calm your heart and your mind enough to listen to for that still small voice of God that's going to lead you to places that are more life-giving, grace-producing, that will enable you to respond in the most faithful way no matter what challenges you might have to face in your life. Thankfully, our God is not a God who asks us to do something that God's not willing to do himself. Relax, detach, listen. I mean, 
We see Jesus modeling this for us his entire life, but particularly in the last days, the last hours of his life. He gets his disciples together for the Last Supper to celebrate the Passover meal. He ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see this relax, detach, and listen kind of flow happening. Maybe it happens backwards for Jesus. He spends time in prayer listening, but initially, like, he's not relaxed. He's so anxious, he's sweating drops of blood. But as he listens, as he prays, as he says to God, not my will, but your will be done, as he practices detachment from what he knows is about to happen, he ends up in that relaxed place. That by the time Judas shows up, by the time uh, the soldiers show up to arrest him, Jesus is able to respond in that moment in a faithful way when the stakes are the highest. We remember that moment when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed. He was sharing a meal with his closest friends. He took some bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. Uh, Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.